You're listening to the 11th episode of Season 3 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about strict, rules-focused Christianity not working, but is not an attack on faith. It's about trying to maintain some connection to God despite everyone. It's also about depression, suicidal ideation, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. Episode 11, Disappointed. Normally, when one is buried under a crushing, numbing, cold, gray, aching tidal wave of depression, the last thing that's going to happen is one makes something, particularly a song. The ancient Greeks believed that songs came from somewhere outside the person, from the muses, magical women who inspired or breathed ideas into people who would then realize them and send them out into the world. I don't literally believe in muses, but it sure does feel like that when a song comes to me. It also makes you feel a tiny, tiny bit like God. God envisions the geography and the animals and speaks the energy and structure of the entire world into reality. You write and talk and sing a song that never was into being. It feels like you're doing magic because like your divine father, you're creating something from more or less nothing. For me, songs and tunes come from the same place dreams come from, as near as I can tell. It's like getting any song stuck in your head, only the song hasn't been written yet. My parents reading about singers like Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones saying in their interviews that their music seemed to come to them from somewhere else and take them over as they performed it, saw this as a sure sign that rock music was coming from demons. Other musicians have spoken of feeling like radios tuned to a channel no one else but them can hear, picking up songs that no one has ever sung before, like antennas to the unknown, and other stuff that all sounds downright magical. You know, the same starry-eyed way that people talk about not eating gluten or learning how to breathe. When you're pent up, and you're required to be pent up, it can seem like the most powerful form of magic ever to get free for any of that pent-up stuff to get out, especially if no furniture gets broken in the process. Oddly, if I'm expressing myself when I'm very unhappy or upset, I tend to get funny. I mean, my most successful attempts at humor, what makes other people laugh most, is when I'm doing that. When I think something's funny, mentally, people don't generally feel that humor. But when I'm angry or dying inside and want to make a dark, venomous comment in conversation, people will often burst out laughing, as it kind of encapsulates something they too were thinking or feeling, but lacked the wording and or didn't lack the social restraint that would have kept most other people from saying the thing. But it got out, and it wasn't supposed to. As Russell Brand would put it, it's like when a dog has wandered into the elementary school playground and kids are going nuts because there's some life that's not under school control and is not supposed to be there. But it is. Permanent, but things aren't permanent, but they can be disrupted and changed, even in very trivial situations, very trivial examples. Like when I was at school, you know, when you're at school and you're at your desk and you're doing your work and you're through the window you see the dog has come in the playground. There's a dog in the playground! <laughs> Nothing's real. 
I find speaking the truths you're not supposed to say out loud into the air of a room often gets gales of shocked and delighted laughter. I've never written a song when I was more depressed than when I wrote this week's one, which I wrote in my thirties, by which time the songs were not coming very quickly or often. It has been tempting to put it here or there on any album I've written because it could just slide on in there and is a good encapsulation of what an afternoon's bout of depression is like. It's pretty short, so it could function as a kind of outro for any number of different songs of mine. The thing people who don't suffer it don't usually get about depression is that the feeling is one of crushing, dread, despair, sorrow, loss, and all the rest of that, but there isn't really any good reason for it. So when civilians ask you, why are you sad? They've put their finger on the problem. There's no good reason that you can give them. There just isn't. Not even for why chemicals in your brain or vibes or momentum or energy or mood or life balance or whatever are out of balance or something, and therefore you're having this happen. But your brain tries to keep up, of course. It does its best. It tries to act like you feel this way because it's figured some stuff out because your current intellectual perspective on life, the universe, and everything is correct, and you're feeling all this weighty sorrow as a response to those thoughts, to that perspective, overdose, your suffering. But I think it's normally the opposite. The feelings hit you, and the thoughts try to claim to be on top of things afterward, when they weren't. I spoke with Jenny from Sword Class about depression. To what degree do you think this is it could be explicable by your past and you, what you experienced and how much of it's your body. Basically the nature versus nurture yes. argument apply to depression. I yeah. have a lot of opinions on this. It's um, not an answerable question, but I want to hear what you say anyway. I think that there is a biological component and there is a sociological and historical component and you cannot separate the two at all say i went on medication that somehow magic pill perfectly fixed my brain chemistry so that all of my neurotransmitters and receptors and pathways are working as a normal person's would and there's air quotes there if even if that were to happen it does not give me financial stability, housing stability, all of these things that I would need to make sure that I can survive in the world without having to wear myself down to a nub to satisfy the machinery, you know, daily grind, all of that. It wouldn't fix that. But on the other hand, um, even if I were to have financial stability and housing stability, and all the money that I could want and all the things that I possibly want or need, that's still not going to fix the fact that I talk to myself in a very negative way. And sometimes I can't get out of bed. And the neurochemistry side of it, um, I had the opportunity to watch some some um seminars from seminars yeah that's the one and they were talking about how trauma will actually leave a an imprint on your somatic system your body systems the way that people hold their bodies the way that they breathe 
the way that like maybe they will shrink into themselves when they're near a certain person all of these things are unconscious they're not a a matter of the mind if you're hunched in together you're not going to be able to feel relaxed because you cannot take a deep breath there really needs to be an understanding of how everything exists in a system nothing exists in isolation and in order to treat a problem in a healthy sustainable and non-damaging way you have to look at causes effects and treatments in holistic ways very different things make different people feel like they're sleepwalking zombie like through their week johan weighs in what what makes my life feel more like a living death uh i hate feeling time being wasted and i and i don't mean wasted like i'm not doing much i mean time being wasted like at the end of the day i like to know that the world is a better place because i was in it and not every day can we say that and that's okay but i like to ask myself that at the end of the day is today better because i was here and if i can say yes in some way even if it was just better for one person even if it was just better for my family then then it's not really a wasted day but boy it is easy to waste days in that in that mindset and for me especially um i find work the longer i'm in my career um the more uncomfortable i feel with the work that i'm doing uh and with the people that i'm interacting with and uh it 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 sometimes some days especially just makes me feel deeply uncomfortable really awful when i first started uh in my teaching career uh, at the start of the school year you know i would get really nervous lots of teachers do i would have nightmares about the first day first days are so important right and 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 you know first impressions and and i'd be planning these new courses and i'd be scared to death and and it was an awful feeling and you'd go you'd meet the students cds into things and and the nightmares would end and the you know, you'd just have a lot of fun. I find that now that I'm a decade in, now that I understand more about the system, now that I've got kids in the system, um, I, I don't have those nightmares anymore. Instead, I have this deep, heart-aching existential dread about what I am doing when I go in. I have this feeling like a, a catch in my throat. Like when I go to work, I feel like I'm making the world worse because I'm participating in a system that I'm deeply uncomfortable with. I, I really, really, really don't like that feeling. Um, I stick with it because, uh, you know, people keep telling me that I have an opportunity to make positive change, positive difference. Hasn't happened yet. Um, it's something that really weighs on me. That, for me, is what really makes daily life difficult. Sherry feels like her life starts slipping away from her when being a mom takes all of her time. What kind of makes your day just like you you feel like the walking dead, you know, for the day? If I don't have time to myself to kind of be creative or be learning something, or um, if I don't have a moment of rest to myself during the day, that's, uh, yeah, it makes for a very, very long day. Which if you're a mother, that's pretty easy for that to happen. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Having to continually give of myself with no way to get a break or yeah. The other thing would be 
pretending. If I have to be constantly on and on guard and pretending to be something I'm not or, you know, hiding a, a part of myself like I would have to when I would go to meeting, that's also pretty soul-sucking. <laughs> Are you saying that going out to church made you feel less alive because oh, you had to pretend? Yeah, for sure. So yeah. just going in the room? I I would say even before it, going in the room, I'd have to, I'd drag my heels because I knew I had to dress a certain way and I was going to be walking into a space where there were certain expectations of me and that I wasn't going to be able to be free. So uh, lack of freedom, lack of autonomy is also for me personally, really important if I don't feel free. So it um, feels like you're not being you, so you're not being. Right. It sounds like you agree with Sherry that the secret to happiness is not coming to terms with the past and feeling better about it, nor is it making happy visions for the future, but that living in the present is the key to all happiness. It sounds like you agree I with do. her on that. Yep. That never really making occurs me. to me. <laughs> I, should, I should think about that more. I'm, I'm always thinking of what can I plan that will be cool that will make me happy. And yeah. what, what, do I, what am I feeling bad about that I can stop feeling bad about? That's how I tend to think. Jay Semko of the Northern Pike speaks about how overworking can make people extremely miserable and unable to work together for long. When you're on kind of a, on a run, as we were in the late 80s to the early 90s, we, were, we had that sort of pattern of record an album, get a little bit of time off, then promote it like crazy, and then go on the road and just keep going and going and going right up until you go into the studio to do another album again. You know, so you really didn't give yourself much time off for yourself. And I think we really kind of should have done that earlier, earlier on. Michael Vetter, raised in our brethren group, but always a free spirit, knows how terrible it can make you feel to be gossiped about and shunned in that group. Did you ever have situations where the fact that you were out, you really felt it and they made it difficult? Well, before I had stepped out and our family was, they were being labeled as, as into the occult and into uh, there are all sorts of rumors flying around and blooming rumors. And I was with Bethany and we went to a conference. This is before we were married. We were, I think we were dating maybe almost before we were engaged. You're um, both still fully, fully members. Yes. We're both still fully members. Um, anyways, we went out to Des Moines conference and there were some young people there that I knew that had come to our house and that were, uh, I was the last I had talked with them. We were on great speaking terms and great friends. And there was a, a circle of, of like three of them and their mother. Uh, I, I didn't recognize anybody because I'm out in the Midwest, like far Midwest to me, Des Moines is like way out there. And, uh, I went up to them and I was like, Oh, Hey. And I, I, you know, said, hi, how are you guys? And they all looked at me and then turned, turned away, turned their backs to me completely yeah. and huddled in a circle to not talk to me. And it was so crushing. Like it was the most, one of the most crushing feelings I'd ever had. I grew up with that in high school. That's just like a Canadian Plymouth brethren move. Oh, they weren't Canadian. I, I, I don't. I know. I'm just know saying that. they're. Um, I'm saying they're throwing the moves because, you know, I was only a teenager, and if I was depressed and missed several young people's meetings, 
um, at school, all the kids would lean on things and just lounge around. The brethren kids were in a, a tight circle, shoulder to shoulder. And I would come up and on a couple of, of occasions, I walked up and the circle tightened because I hadn't been out to young people's. And I would try to push my way in and they'd not let me in. So I'd stand behind them. And th- these are people I grew up with, like went to kindergarten with people a little bit older, a little bit younger. And in one case, I said something and someone just said, haven't seen you young people's for a few weeks now. What do you think about the fact that our culture was self-policing by children? It shows that they, uh, the children automatically pick up on the unspoken rules um, and put it into practice. To the to, probably to the point where it's embarrassing to the parents that their children are being such assholes, you know. It's a little I bit mean, too yeah. on the nose. It kind of reveals the stuff you're not supposed to talk about. They're too close to revealing what really is going on. Yeah, which is the, the competition. Whatever, you're doing something in and turn it into like a uh, you know physical reality. So it's supposed to be a subtle competition with weaponized shame, and they are not the least bit yeah. subtle about gearing up with their shame weapons. Sherry's husband, Chris, is more subject to depression, and part of it is the very lost, empty feeling he gets knowing he now needs to figure out his stance toward God and life and the Bible himself, starting right back at square one, rather than just leaving all that up to the meeting folks to do for him. What, what is the worst thing in your life that makes the days just blend one into the other and you don't care what happens? Well, I get depressed really easily, and so in some ways I want to say it's just, well, every day. Really? I'm the same. I'm still trying to figure out God and my faith. Mm-hmm. And it would be more along the lines of, I still don't know. I still don't have it figured out. It's not depressing to think about faith. It's just uncomfortable. It's depressing in that I don't know anymore. And it's something that I miss. Right. The certainty of it. I'm not sure if that makes sense. No, I'm the same. That I remember being the simplicity of not questioning things made things easy and when there's so much doubt and deconstruction it makes you feel like that it was so much easier the other way raised in the abusive children of god sex cult angel feels she was raised not to let the happiness happen so she has learned to simply let the joy come to her naturally i feel the most alive now when i am allowing myself to feel blissful And that can be in almost any situation. That can be when I'm hiking. That can be when I've just finished a project that I have really been like meaning to do because it's part of my life's work. Mm -hmm. That can be after I, you know, wrote something, wrote a story that is now into the ether and I don't have to write it again. Or it's when I accomplish a breakthrough of a mindset and just allowing myself to feel really blissful. And it happens often for me where, you know, I'll be sitting at the beach and I was saying this in another interview where the fact that my life started so dark means that there are so many moments of joy now and they're much brighter than they would have been otherwise so like me sitting at the beach is very normal I think Mm -hmm. (laughs) but for me it means that I didn't have to tell anyone where I was going I didn't have to ask permission to use the car I'm not wasting the Lord's money for gas I don't have a timeline that I need to get back and report to someone I'm just here enjoying the moment. And the moment is so much more joyful because I was never supposed to have it. Mm -hmm. I was very specifically deprived of it. So anytime I have those moments of realization of like, oh, I wouldn't have been able to write that article because I would have gotten in trouble or I wouldn't have been able to do this podcast or I wouldn't have been able to just 
draw this picture or curl my hair or put on this, you know, mascara, all of those can turn into moments of bliss. And so when I feel the most joy is, is I think when I remember the contrast. Cheryl sees self and identity as the answer to many questions. There's a popular phrase that it's spot on, it's mindfulness. Mm. When we lose ourselves, it's because we haven't been paying attention. We've let things outside of us come in and take over. Like other people's ideas are of us, things they've done to us, things they're going to do to us. And that starts taking us over. And you actually, if you get into the practice of mindfulness, you will notice the energetic shift when suddenly your mind has moved to the past or worried about the future instead of being right here, right now. And the more you focus right here and right now, uh, the more alive you will feel because life is found in the present moment. And in the now is your true self. And when you try to be something you're not, you're pulling in from the past, what people said, how they treated you, their expectations, and you lose connection with yourself. Depression is generally comorbid with multiple sclerosis, so it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. I know that ever since my brain and spinal cord tried to eat themselves that time a few years back, I tend to have a couple of hours of crushing fatigue unlike anything I've ever felt before, a few afternoons a week, often accompanied by some pretty dark thoughts. It's not my muscles that feel tired. Walking up a flight of stairs feels like my brain is out of the electricity required to tell those larger muscle groups I want them to start moving. It helps to know it's just a thing that happens and ride it out. Take a nap, take a very slow walk, something. And after two or five hours, it tends to recede as mysteriously as it arrived, often just in time for bed. So after work, around the time the sun is setting, maybe driving home, I will often be hit by a dark, empty, weighty feeling of futility and despair. And I will ask myself, is something wrong or is it just late afternoon again? Noting that it is just late afternoon means I recognize it as a thing and wait for it to go. And it does. This is quite different from the prolonged bouts of depression that unrelentingly stay with you for weeks or months at a time. I've definitely had those at various points in my life, too, and they're not the same. And with me, mostly I function when I'm depressed. I get up and go to work and so on if I'm supposed to. I stumble around like a child's toy with almost nothing left in the batteries, and after a few hours, I usually come around again and I'm not as bad off. That's not how it works for many people. So, in the early 2000s, I felt the depression, felt the lack of connection to much of anyone or anything in the world, felt the lack of my life working out or moving in any sensible direction that might well yield success of any kind, and I was sitting around feeling like absolute crap, and this song came and landed on my shoulder and began to quietly sing itself to me. And when that happens, if you're me, suddenly you start to tremblingly, slowly shift in your view of yourself from someone whose existence people and reality itself clearly do not require, someone with destructive impulses, to someone with a creative impulse, a, a song idea, to someone who is composing a song. And not everyone does that. It's a thing you do, and you're doing it again, and creating feels better. You move from a guy who doesn't think his thoughts are worth anything to a guy who's expressing some of his thoughts in a song that he's probably going to keep. For some reason, when writing this one, I wrote it on Bill's 11th string guitar, which I had borrowed for some song or other. 
I didn't have a 12-string acoustic guitar, which has obviously twice the number of strings as a usual six-string acoustic, so it sounds all complex and chimey, but just involves pressing pairs of strings instead of single strings down when you're fretting, so you don't need to learn new chords or anything. You play it in the usual fashion, and you get twice the number of strings ringing out. As mentioned in Season 1 on the episode about the Romantic Song, a song I used this same instrument on, Bill Body used Yamaha 12-string back in the day, and we were all using it because no one else had one, and one time, Bill had leaned it up against something, and as sometimes happens with guitars, it started to fall over. We all watched it slowly tip over from too far away for anyone to grab it in time, Bill having never got a case or stand for it yet, and it hit the ground hard with a crack and an unmusical karanging sprong sound. We heard Bill yell, F**k! Like someone in latter days who's dropped his phone and saw that the nut, the plastic or nylon bit that's part of threading the strings through from the tuning pegs, now had a piece broken off it. This meant that until Bill took the strings off, pried the old nut off, bought a new nut and glued it on, or even just let the pressure of the strings hold the new nut in place, one of the two high E strings could not be strung onto the guitar anymore. As nuts cost maybe $15, I was eager for Bill to get on that. But Bill being Bill, he said, F*** it, I like it better this way, and refused to let me fix it either. So I wrote this song on Bill's 11-string, 12-string. I strummed very softly with the skin of my fingers rather than a pick and made up words about what I imagined might be on my gravestone someday, a word that would sum up my parting review of life itself. And that word was disappointed, disappointed. like a one-word review for a movie or album, child, or marriage might just be disappointing. Pretty harsh. Here's what I did back in the day, profoundly depressed, but pulling out of it with this song— I wrote the song on Bill's guitar in my apartment and quickly slapped it down to my hard drive as part of writing it. I must admit to being disappointed with life, with love, with everything. Yes, I thought it would all be a bit more natural. I guess I thought I could do it and find peace. But playing guitar and singing a song while writing it is a form of play. And play is normally a happy thing. As I put the simple, simple song together... It reminded me of Why Not, which had been written a decade earlier. I've got the two songs on the album and in the podcast together. Why Not was young, fresh, new suicidal ideation, while Disappointed was, oh, this again. In terms of composition, Disappointed is a continuation, the same thing, after decades of this sort of thing. In terms of recording, Last week, I tricked Why Not all out in instrument and processing stuff I had mostly already done somewhat for Disappointed back in the day, taking that stuff further this time. Disappointed ended up being, just like Why Not, another song that was a two-way conversation about what the point of living was. One voice said that graveyards were nice. The other said you can visit them whenever you like without taking up permanent residence there. Ruth 
raised in a brethren assembly in Maine, shares my love of graveyards. I love, love, love graveyards, cemeteries. I love walking in them. I love exploring them. It sounds morbid, but if no, I, I like them too. Oh, you don't you don't think that this is like really strange on my part? Not at all. And I'm sure that you weren't in them at night like I was. I don't generally go in them at night. Graveyards are really nice places. The older and the more unkempt, the better. When they start to be a little bit too scrubbed and a little bit too neat and a little bit too well-kept, I start to lose interest a little bit. But the old ones, there's a feeling of peace. There's a feeling of very, very deep, serenity in an old graveyard and I have often just gone and just sat down in a graveyard just to feel that quiet that calm it's it's a beautiful thing it's not the least bit sad or morbid or anything I remember being a kid and absolutely scaring myself to death with stories about hands reaching up out of the graves but mm-hmm. I don't feel that way anymore. I don't feel that that horror and that fear anymore. I I just feel that deep sense of peace. They're good places. A feeling of 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 rest, a feeling of completeness, a feeling of having finished the work mm-hmm. that they were meant to do. Now I, I'm not talking about people who died violent deaths because I think that's very different. Mm-hmm. I think that someone who had died a violent death or an accidental death. I think there'd be a terrible feeling of incompleteness there. Melody, from a different Brethren group than ours, agrees with us. It's a song I wrote when I was incredibly depressed. I sort of have this thing that when I'm incredibly depressed, I'll get a creative idea. And usually it's funny, Mm. which is weird. So this one, I was almost thinking of it as an epitaph. Like if I were dead, what would be the most me thing that would express this mood right now to put on my tombstone? And it would be the word disappointed. <laughs> my name the date disappointed. disappointed i love cemeteries i love hanging out in them i love visiting them um if i travel anywhere i go to the oldest cemetery i can find mm-hmm. i they're lovely peaceful places mm-hmm. related something i have observed in myself in the last two years is a desire to go to a liturgical church Mm-hmm. Um, and they often have uh, cemeteries associated with them, you know, the churchyard. Yeah. You're in Maine, and you're yeah. not too far from the sea, and you have cemeteries with people who would have fought in the American Revolutionary War and all sorts of things. Yes, I'm up the road from one. Yeah. And also people who are lost at sea, and so weren't properly buried in the cemetery, but there were monuments mm-hmm. raised to them. Cheryl, just having far more spiritual energy than I do, feels that death is a liberation from life's troubles. The idea that I will die, that my tenure here is temporary, really makes every day important. And I'm older, 64, so what, at least a decade, maybe two, being able to give something to the world. And so it's become utmost. Uh, Children are raised, things are gone, you know, it's time to really... Uh, give. I've always tried to give, but I've worked uh, parent and then lately working for money. Right now, when I look at death, I smile because it's like, we're going, we're sliding into that home base. Mm -hmm. We're going for it. We're running. And when I get there, there'll be a moment and it'll be 
out. You know, you didn't make it. You're dead. You're gone. Your time's up. But that run is going to be fun. <laughs> and, um, and actually, one of the things that makes us create these false ideas of who we are is our fear of death is we, 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 we've got to, we've got to endure. We've got to be something. We have to have a label. We've got to. And when you realize that you are just a temporary arising in this world, um, you know, what of you exist on, that's another discussion, but who you think you are is just here for a certain amount of time. It's freedom. It's like, oh my goodness, then this isn't a race and I'm going to win a prize or not. And so, because people think that they're in some sort of competition here and if they fail the competition one day, they're out and, and, and they might, it's just, there's so much pressure on young people to achieve, to accomplish, to, to do the things that, that actually do nothing for them or their soul or other people's souls, but just keeps the world machinery going. And they're convinced that that is by doing that, they'll have some sort of immortality or something that they're, it's really, it is so freeing to accept that I'm a batter right now. I'm running around the bases and pretty soon I'm going to slide into home and it's over. My turn at bat is over. Let's make the most of it. Let's make this fun. I don't actually go to cemeteries very often. Like golf courses, I really like the serenity there and how they look, but I also feel like I don't belong there. That something else is going on that I'm not doing. Birdies, putting, and resting in peace. More on this, believe it or not, in the next episode. It is very me that there is a lot of wry humor and an actual pun in the middle of my depressed composing, playing on the word gaudy, as in brightly colored and tacky, versus gaudy being all about God. When you're depressed, you may lie around for days, hearing only your heartbeat and your labored breathing sounding like you're in a bit of pain. There's a lot of sighing. So I stole a few more ideas from Pink Floyd to reflect that reality. I sang in both of my octaves and tried to keep the arrangement really simple but heartfelt. Also, as a razor blade had been my intended weapon of choice in my teens should I have ever taken my life and I'd tried and failed to push it into the flesh of my inner wrist for a few days there back then, never quite properly breaking the skin, this not being a form of cutting, my intention being to never walk around again, period, not to walk around with stylized scarring, I went to the drugstore in my 30s, bought a package of old-school razor blades, and for the first time tried strumming my six-string guitar with one very, very carefully, I might add. It sounded pretty normal, just maybe a bit more chimey. No mishaps, either. This was the first time I'd ever tried this. Curry and I chat about suicide a bit. But I mean, I'm sure you knew that I was very seriously thinking about suicide before I had a driver's license. And it was something I thought about all the time. And it was not so much that I wanted to be dead. It was that I didn't... I, I, I was in total denial about that. Okay. I didn't know how how to do life. And part of, like, you're talking about curiosity about the world's filled with things. I had been convinced that the world was filled with terrible things. And that... Right. And, and unfortunately, if that's your outlook, if your outlook is that if you look deep enough, you'll find the shit that everything sucks. Um, there's a lot of evidence for that. So like with even with dating women, um, if your expectation 
is that they're going to seem nice and pretty and interesting and healthy on the first date. They'll keep it together for the first date. And then the more you get to know them, the more you find out what's really going on and, and people suck. If that's natural to your genetics and the church amps that up um, to say the world is horrible and dangerous and sinful and hateful, and there's nothing in it that's good. Um, why would you want to live like that? That really isn't a healthy yep. thing. And that, that's sort of what I dealt with. Um, yeah, I can see that. I knew that you had the thoughts. I was in complete denial about it. I was never convinced that you were serious about it. And now that's not true. I, I convinced myself that you wouldn't see anything through. And I always, I, I guess I secretly thought that you would talk to me first or, or check in with me first before you would do something like that. Um, I was either in denial or I didn't believe that you would do it. Not that I didn't think you were serious because you're a very serious person by nature, but I, I didn't think you'd follow through with that. Not because you're not brave because I just didn't think you would. Yeah. I had every intention of it and it didn't really happen. And, and oddly what has happened since then is I have known so many people who killed themselves. It's almost like with each person, whether they're students or parents of students or just random people in the community, uh, people that I know, Every time someone kills themselves, there's something in me that says, oh, you bastard, you just wounded a community. Like there are so many hurting people because of what you just did that I couldn't, you know, I, I don't think I could possibly take myself seriously if I, I was most serious about suicide in my teens. I think that's very typical of human beings that you yeah. don't know much in your teens and you don't know what to do and you don't get it. And I think the only answer to it is you have your little victories. You have the little things to succeed at. And the more little things like we've got kids coming back from COVID and we're being told to kid glove them. I am not sure that's what I think will work. I think the only thing I think will work is to give them little tasks. Yes. I think to give them little tasks that they can succeed at the more of those. And I think that's generally this COVID doesn't change most things. And no matter what has been done to these kids by their parents, by the schools, by the government, I keep being told to not teach them to just make them comfortable. And I, I think I'm going to ignore some of that because I think the kids and I will put our heads Would together. Would you please ignore f-ing all of that? That's horrible yeah, that's, advice to give to a teacher. I've listened to podcasts and followed them on Twitter and talked to them. I have been on YouTube channels and gone on live streams on YouTube. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Saturday live stream back on its actual scheduled time. Yes. Um, it's very right important, but it's on the actual scheduled time yes i'm glad uh, you mentioned that michael i've been wondering when it was going to return to its regularly scheduled time well somebody pointed out to me the last time that we were on an off saturday anything in the mailbag today conrad people have been commenting on buckaroo bonsai still when we were sharing a clip from the nightclub scene wicked person pointed out that is a saxophonist playing two saxes at the same time (laughs) isn't it is that a thing? <laughs> well, it's the 80s. Anything goes. Well, quite. Exactly. And Russian machines replied, in the 80s, yes. Oh. Welcome, everybody, to the Band of Brothers live discussion with my good friend, Tony Roberts from Analog Toys. How are you, sir? Welcome, everybody, to... I am doing great as soon as I mute YouTube. Sorry, that was me. <laughs> oh, hi, Wicked. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So this was nominated by Wicked Person. And yeah, this will be our second John Carpenter movie of the year. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. 
and then also followed them on Twitter and had communication with them. But I don't think I've met people on Twitter. I don't think it's a good place to meet people. I don't think it's a good place to interact with groups of people. And there's other things that are better for that. But it seems to be very important, like during COVID in particular, especially, you know, me living in the woods by myself, being single, because on the subject of depression, if you want to make me depressed, just make me stay home and not talk to anybody for a few months. That's how you do it. And I'm a teacher. So unfortunately, that's pretty much what we do with teachers. Once June is over, go home and stay there until September. And people would say how great it is to have, you know, July and August off. And the reality for me is I don't see people anymore because I'm not going to my job. And also I have them off, which means that I'm trying to fix things and I don't have enough money because teachers aren't rich. So that means that there's this waiting game of waiting for that paycheck that I earned months ago to arrive so that I can afford to buy a drill and fix something with the drill. And actually, what do, what do you think about the idea that a lot of what we're doing to build our self-image in a good way is not an empty flattery from other people um, or taking flattering selfies, but in little victories, little achievements, like creating little things? I agree with that. And I'm going to go off on a tangent, good. but I promise I have a point. There are books that I can read two of every day and get joy out of it and enjoy it. And that is a worthwhile experience, but like doesn't necessarily impact my life very much. Forget about it in a while. And there's TV shows like that too. And they have their uses. They're valuable to me, but like they're, they're potato chip media. Mm-hmm. Like you can't stop at just one but like, it doesn't fill you up like a good meal, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think the way that like, we approach interpersonal relationships is like that too. Social media gives you a lot of like potato chip moments, but they're not very nutritious. They don't like nurture you. But the deeper kind of connections that you get with actually interacting with someone on a deeper level or having a long-term relationship with someone, be that as a coworker or um, as an acquaintance, as a friend, as a family member, as a partner, any of those, that is in a completely different class. That kind of thinking also applies to what we do with our time. So like our little achievements, even though they don't seem to mean much when judged by, you know, the lens of social media or what other people would think. Maybe they got you to deeply engage with something. Maybe they brought you joy. And that is important. That's not a potato chip moment. But all this leads me to a thing I can tell you about when you're stressed or depressed or whatever. You need to play. To lose yourself in some form of messing around with something that's not work, not for someone else, and without a terribly fixed deadline or structure. Something small, something slow, something natural, just something you do. And probably not something digital, except maybe Minecraft, which allows you to create, not just react to imaginary stressors coming from the app itself and other people. My latest theory is that you need to play, and that digital things play you more than the other way around. When you play, you are active and you initiate each step of what happens in your own way and time. 
The thing you are playing with sits and waits for you every time you stop. It would wait forever. With electronics, normally, you are passive and you react, rather than act, forever locked into the digital tempo of the algorithms that are continually prompting and enticing you to keep on following their lead. If you leave your phone for long without touching it, it starts vibrating and flashing notifications and reminders and making sounds and so on. So you let it mold your time around it a bit each day. You are the game it's playing, just like your attention and clicks are what are being sold to the big corporations by your apps rather than your personal info or just your money. You pour your time and attention, your views and clicks and money into a phone, and you don't usually see much lasting afterward. With a lump of clay, a painting, a sweater you're knitting, or shed you're building, or wall you're painting, or car you like washing, or something like that, when you collapse into sleep that night, the results of the time spent will be there looking at you the next day, and quite probably in a good way. It will feel like you reached out and did something to the world. As I told Jenny, who I met years ago at sword class, sometimes I really struggle to give myself permission to play. But what I'm finding is that I'm behind in my marking. And as long as I feel that I'm too behind in my marking, I can't watch TV. I don't give myself permission. What I'm finding that I'm doing is to recreate. I'm doing other work because I'm only letting myself do work. So yesterday I could have watched TV. I could have done things, but what did I do? Um, I have a couple of tons of gravel dumped in my driveway, blocking my way. And it rained. And so what I did that was really fun was I went out in the rain after the sun had set in the dark. And in the rain, I shoveled gravel into wheelbarrows and dumped it on my driveway until I couldn't see because enough rainwater had poured into my eyes that they were stinging too much. And the weird part is that felt crappy. But once I was done, it's like I really needed something like that because I wasn't getting exercise and I was just looking at screens and everything was for my job and I needed that somehow. Have you ever had that thing where you go and run and, and you feel bad and then you feel good? You get high on running somehow because I've never, ever had that. I don't run. Um, I'm not a running person, but I've had that with like physical activity in general, I think that mood of like you don't want to do it but you'll feel better after you do it kind of extends to sleep and food so a phrase that. i've always wanted to say that i i need to use is it's, it's been, been some, some time, time since you and i crossed swords. swords but in the intervening time um what kind of exercise has worked for you because i have a really hard time getting myself to do any i have done pretty much no exercise and as a result of that, or the cause and effect of this is iffy, but um, I've been having a lot of physical issues with just like pain and joint mm -hmm. composition. But I, I just started doing like simple things like modified push-ups and crunches. Just at home? Yeah, just at home, just on my floor. Um, I try to do them before bed. I don't stress too much if I miss a day um, because I'm also doing school and stuff is pretty crazy. But like I'm doing that again and kind of I, I've done it's something that I have done on a daily basis for a really, really large chunk of my life. 
but that I have stopped doing. But I mean, people like you and I are unlikely to enjoy team sports because something oh, no. something that I, I meant to mention before is I was kind of appalled. Um, I mean, I'm, depression is, I would say, a thing with me. But in my family, there's also what I would call social anxiety, which it's bad enough that it's like this. If you put me in a crowd, I need to leave. And so I love to go to concerts and all of that. And while I'm waiting in line, I'm just miserable that I have to wait in line. Not not bored, but the fact that I'm in proximity with all these bodies and I don't know what to do makes me very miserable. And once I get to my seat, I have this huge sigh of relief that I have a seat and I can sit in it and nobody else can sit in it. And then I enjoy the show. But once again, but when it's time to leave, there's all these bodies and I have to get out. And I, you know, it, it makes me very uncomfortable. Even something as dumb as like staff meetings at work. As soon as I go into the room filled with people, I want to leave. Is that something that is the same with you? Oh, like entirely, completely mm-hmm. and utterly. Um, like I don't so have I, panic attacks. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't hyperventilate or anything, I don't think. But one of the things I noticed at school a few years back, you know how there's like the four Fs and it's like fight, flight, or freeze and the other one? Fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. I've heard a different F word used to describe it. But what I realized was that I was tempted to pick social fights whenever I was stuck in a crowd because I wanted to leave and I was resenting not being able to leave. And I found I was getting in way more arguments than was normal, even for me, because I was irritable and I had no patience and I felt put upon that I had to be in that room. And what seemed to happen was somebody would say something that would annoy me and I'd snap at them and it would, a, an argument would happen and I'd leave. And I'd realize, you know what? You can just leave. You don't have to have the argument. You go to the staff meeting. You sit in the room. They've been talking for an hour. You're very uncomfortable. Just leave. And I started giving myself permission to do that. Um, it's interesting that you say that. And also, I want to just like bring something up that mm-hmm. I didn't know. And it kind of like changed a lot of things for me once I realized this. There's a difference between panic attacks and anxiety attacks. Okay. And... Um, some people may have panic attacks, some people have anxiety attacks, and some people have both. There, there's a lot of anger in me for like diluting phrases. Yeah. Things like anxiety and depression, like people will say, oh, I'm so depressed today. Mm-hmm. And they'll just be like, oh, you got rained on mm-hmm. or, or something like that. Whereas people who are actually depressed will say, oh, I'm so depressed today. And other people will just like assume that it's it's nothing because or, or, or worse than that mm-hmm. the, the happy people will say i'm so depressed today which means i'm slightly less cheerful than usual and the depressed yeah. people will never comment on it because it's so ordinary for them to be depressed that they will never bring it up as a thing the other thing that annoyed me about the doctor experience with the anxiety is i experience anxiety and depression as opposites and i'm not saying i'm right about that but experientially how they feel is the opposite so anxiety is that that being overstimulated. Your body is in overdrive. So I don't get most of what you said. I get the heart palpitations. And I don't get them when I'm under stress. I will literally be asleep and wake up with full-on like heart palpitations or just be watching TV or something, nothing, and it just comes from nowhere. And it's what you're saying. It builds on itself. Like, oh, I'm having heart palpitations, you know, and it scares you because that doesn't seem very healthy. And when I'm depressed, I'm just like a dead battery. It's just like there's no, no, my brain can't make any energy to do anything. Why does virtually every person with MS, why did they suffer from depression throughout their life? Nobody knows. And nobody seems to be looking very hard to find out at all. And 
to me, that's depression. Depression is your dead battery. Anxiety is you're in overdrive. You get all these, all this uncomfortable energy. And it was obvious to me that my doctor viewed them as identical and treated them as identical. That both of them get the same thing and they're SSRI blockers, I think. SSRIs? Um, something. yeah, SSRIs. Thank you, degree I never completed. But you've but, tried um, those, but you've tried those things, I'm assuming. And are those the ones that they work for some time and then stop working? Or how what's your experience with those? Um, I will I, w- I will actually talk about that in a moment, but like okay. was your doctor actually qualified to give you a mental health diagnosis? I doubt it. You're just a GP. There is that. Um, a lot of doctors, you'd think that doctors would know shit about your mind. They don't. They're not qualified to give you mental I'm health I'm pretty diagnosis. sure, you know, I didn't look over his shoulder, but it, this is experientially, I mentioned anxiety. So he decided that I had it. Or I said I, I might have it. So he decided that, yes, you do then. And then he pretty much Googled Chatelaine and under, you know, what Disney princess are you and what Game of Thrones character are you? I swear he found like a little thing of, you know, what kind of anxiety are you? And asked me like a, a few questions and it's like, yep, yep. It, well, it says here, the thing that I just Googled in front of you says that you may have zero or a hundred anxieties. And yeah, I didn't feel very confident in his diagnosis, especially with the idea that a bit of serotonin is all that's going to fix it, you know? Chris, raised in one of our brethren meetings, feels great once he finishes programming some code into a computer. Uh, probably the closest that would come to mind would be after days of banging my head against the keyboard on a programming project and finally figuring it out. Right. Um, that's the closest I can get. His wife, Sherry, loves home renovation and singing as a way of feeling free. Currently, it would probably be, you know, daydreaming or designing or seeing. Home renovations? Yeah, seeing seeing that sort of thing come to life and just looking at houses or looking at other people's renovations. Like, anything that has to do with house stuff is, is really up my alley. Um, the other thing I really enjoy or used to enjoy, and I probably would if I could get into it again, was singing with others and just kind of making music together. Mm-hmm. Um that there's a timelessness in that or in that moment, especially when you, when you are with a group that where you, so for example, when I was uh, growing up with young people in our assembly, we sang together at least once a week. And so we got to know each other very well and singing together was always fun because we kind of knew which roles we played and whatever. And And your, your assembly has a bit like a several generations of sort of being known that music is very important there. Yeah, yeah. So definitely really appreciate music. Um, It's interesting to me, Chris uh, has said like how he feels like he's lost some of his singing skills because he hasn't really sung since we've stopped going to meeting. But I still sing all the time, not to hymns, but to, you know, whatever uh, secular song I'm currently enjoying. I'll, I'll listen to the lyrics and I'll sing them. I know tons of Disney lyrics to all those songs that I learned growing up. And so I've, I've always just enjoyed singing. My sister Debbie, like me, enjoys being out in nature with trees and so on when she needs some peace and groundedness. For me, feeling alive involves being outside. Um, and they, I mean, it comes back from childhood because I went outside for fresh air. I went outside. No one was fighting. There wasn't conflict. There wasn't 
Bibles being, you know, verses being thrown at people and stuff like that. So being outside for me is, um, that's how I feel vitality. And it also became very much, um, a healing, kind of a healer because I had a long time where I couldn't, um, get a concept of God or the creator or, you know, even, even what I believed because it was so steeped in my father and, and, you know, all of the fear and all of that stuff, like God was basically a big tea bag that had been soaked in, in all the fears of, of everybody from this cult. So I spent a lot of time in nature and I would pray in nature. I would pray in a tree and to try to get some freedom in my mind, almost to unbrainwash myself. So I had the option to start to believe in something else, whatever else that was. So nature was this big opening for me. And, and it still is to a lot of a degree. And I've never gone back to a church and I, I never will go back to a church because I'm not interested in having my brain stuffed in a box again and, and being told what God is. It's it, not. It sounds like like me, just this idea of, you know, growing up and accepting that there's nothing that that seems to be grim and beyond what I want to do, just because I don't like what churches do with God. I don't want to sort of say that they have it right, or else no one does. I don't want that to be the only two options. Yeah. And and there was there is very much a sense of when you are in a cult, your, your mind isn't free. You're, it's not supposed to be free. And there is a process, I believe, of unbrainwashing and unlearning un, un, um, a lot of it's stuff all, in order. It's all over Facebook and the, and the catch, the term they're using is deconstruction, but deconstructing their faith or deconstructing their childhood or the, like dismantle the whole thing over time, they think. Yeah, although I don't like that idea because I don't like taking things apart in pieces. And it seems very, this is almost like just washing my brain with something better. Right. Washing it with like clean water as opposed to taking apart this like thing. I already know it's a part. It fell apart like in the first division. I don't need to deconstruct it. It, it already did it for itself. I need though my brain to be um, free to um, so meet instead God of, instead of my own way. The image of being brainwashed. We are like brain shitified that <laughs> <laughs> that we need to wash it out. Yeah, exactly. If you were to enjoy a sunset or a rainbow or a flower. Or the green of the the grass, we would be reminded. Oh, that's just that's just natural joy. That's just the that's just the. We we should be focused on Christ. We've got to get our eyes on Christ. I know a lot of strict brethren people who hiking and camping is their only real recreation, and they mm -hmm. would say that in some way it's spiritual because it's God's creation. But I know mm -hmm. you well enough to know that you don't just enjoy the sunset and you don't just enjoy a rainbow you mm -hmm. need to know what species of beetle and what the habitat mm -hmm. of the bird is and th this is way too scientific for brethren people to accept yes very much i i like i, I love birding i love knowing the different birds knowing when they're migrating through i love all that i just thrive on that but we would consider that and then brethren we would consider that is really taking up way too much of our time and our thoughts that we should be focusing on Christ. We're back to competition. We're back to oh, you finding joy in something piety. that competes. Do you agree with me that mm. it's not just that we each personally needed to follow the rules and sacrifice yes. joy, but that it was a competition as, oh, as individuals and as a family too, as a family, 
Would you agree? Very much. And I would argue that family members would compete against family members for, mm-hmm. for piety and families as units would compete with one another. Like my family would compete with other families for that competitive piety. And we knew which of our cousins were more worldly and which of our cousins were troublingly more pious than us. Yes, absolutely. The ones that we were in competition with, the ones that we had to out-brethren, mm-hmm. but we knew. And most of it was about joy. So maybe the cousins with the TV were not quite as pious. And the cousins whose father was speaking at an all-day meetings, maybe, well, our father wasn't speaking at all-day meetings. No, um, my dad wasn't either. My dad was tape recording the all-day meetings. So there's a little bit of status mm-hmm. there. Um, That's definitely status. Yes. but Although you have to be gathered. You yes. have to be breaking bread to be doing the, the, the sound work and the recording work, if I remember right. There's no reason why women couldn't tape record, but, but they, wouldn't they didn't. Do it. They didn't. Now they took no. notes though. Women took tons of notes. Oh yeah. I have notebooks full of notes from, from meetings. And I never understood because when I was a kid, I would attempt to take notes because I needed something to do with my brain while I was sitting there in the mind numbing stuff. And I concluded that there was nothing to be written down. One time, my first brethren attempt at a relationship, we exchanged mailing addresses to send letters to each other. Mm-hmm. And I tried to be entertaining with art and pictures, mailed her a cassette of silly recordings, you know, very me. And she mailed me an envelope filled with the notes she had been taking from the different Bible conferences she was going yes. to. That's very much of a brethren woman thing to do. And when you look at the notes, you realize, number one, I can't decipher them because I wasn't there. I don't know what you're saying. And secondly, mm-hmm. if I was there, I wouldn't find them noteworthy. There's no content in in those meetings. They would say something like, um, oh, yes, God is, you know, very God, isn't he? Oh, God certainly is God, isn't he? Yet, brethren, I think we can all agree that God is God and has always been God, and no one is more God than God. Hallelujah. And it was like, and you just just wrote a page on that. Like, where did that come from? And I, I think it was just a way to keep your hands busy. I was wondering if we can thread that needle like connect that dot between depression and finding how to be yourself in a way you can live with i'm assuming that that's part of the name of the game right like the the thing that really makes it hard to live is when you don't you haven't hit upon how you want to be and who you want to be some of that it's a moving target yeah things change all the time michael vetter loves to sit outside in nature and smoke a pipe he's made from a tree and which still has the bark and the knots on it. Smoking has always been that for me. It's kind of like the the thing that, that I, I first did where I knew that I wasn't doing what, if I did this in front of the people that I grew up with in the meeting, that I would immediately be, you know, thought I was uh, evil. And, yeah. uh, but to me, it, it was so enjoyable. And so it, to me, it's my... As, you know, as soon as I've, I'm done encountering some meeting people, I automatically like, I need a pipe. <laughs> and that's interesting because it sounds, and I, I relate, it sounds like one of the tools that you needed while you were still trying to deal with the meeting people a lot was you needed something that you felt reminded you of who you were and something that felt like maybe you could be a little bit free in one part of your life. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it, you have to maintain your individuality in the face of everybody saying, you know, you, uh, we we are, want to conform ourselves to Christ, but they, they we're actually saying conform yourself to the meeting ideal. Yeah. Uh, no cheating on the meeting. Right. Right. My answer to that is, well, uh, you know, I'm accused of smoking a pipe as if it's an evil thing. I'm, I'm like, well, 
you know, I thank God for it. I thank God for the tobacco. And I mm -hmm. do. Um, when I remember, you know, a lot of times you, you know, you don't, you don't remember when you're drinking a Coke to thank God for the Coke. That's the sort of thing that really makes your point is they want to suggest that it's a secret evil. And if you bring God into the room, um, that changes everything. Yes, it does. Okay. Um, on the topic of play, mm -hmm. I'm really excited about this. I recently got into video games and I, ha I have not played video games for like my entire life, basically. What are we talking? Up to a couple Cod, months ago. Clash of Clans or Retro or what are we doing? I get motion sickness when I play first-person games. Right. Um, so I was playing a lot of platformers. And also, I am very, very, very intensely introverted and um, a private person. And also, depression makes me isolate myself. So I don't like playing multiplayer games um, at all. So there's a lot of platformers, but I recently started playing Hades. Mm -hmm. Few tales are told of Hades whose very name inspires fear and penitence, reminding us of the inevitable fate which we all share. Um, and I really love it. Even though I don't think I'm very good at it, but like it built into the very mechanic of the game is failure. Hmm. You're meant to fail. And you are meant to fail over and over and over again. But to me, like, I don't know. There's, there's something cathartic about it i i am very conscious of the fact that i am trying to use video games to teach myself that it's okay to fail because it's something i've never learned in my life you can play video games jenny as long as you're learning important lessons about failure that's exactly it <laughs> when i'm most alive i think uh is when i feel like i am not only making the world a better place, that's great, that sounds lovely, doesn't it? But when I feel like I am being my best, when I feel like I'm at my best, even if my best is just something personal, like hitting a personal goal or working on something, or, or if it's something with my family, um, that's what makes me feel good. I don't, I'm not, I've never been particularly interested in feeling happy. What I want to feel is I want to feel satisfied not even you know what I take that back. I don't even want to feel satisfied. What I what I want to feel is I want to feel driven. And I want to feel like I'm I'm moving towards something in a positive way and that's what makes me really feel alive when when I'm doing something that I know means something, even if it just means something to me. I I love that feeling. Um I don't need roller coasters. I don't need cliff diving, anything like that. Those things are fun, but um that's not really what drives me. What drives me is 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 feeling like I'm improving myself, I'm improving the world around me. That's what I that's what I love. Evan likes performing, particularly on drums. I feel good typically when I'm the center of attention. I mean maybe there's something uh, selfish about that, but when I'm doing something that I've prepared or that I know I'm good at or that I have some mastery. So for instance, I play drums. If I'm out playing a gig and everybody's got their eyes on me, especially if the music's sounding good, I feel great. Remember when my son was in his early teens and we went to a lot of concerts there and, and like, I remember seeing some really good live shows. Like I remember seeing Pearl Jam live mm -hmm. and uh, the Foo Fighters 
live, those two really stick out as just really, really good concerts, you know, yeah. like the, and good bands, you know, musical bands that really listen to each other and play together as a band. You know, they, it's like they weren't, they weren't just brought together for that specific purpose. They were people who they'd done the time they'd lived together and been bands together for a while, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, and pointing out to, to my son and saying, just listen to the drums. I said, the thing that always sets really good bands apart from the rest of the pack is the drums, is the drumming that mm -hmm. really does the trick, you know, and it's just, uh, that's why bands are bands. I'm a TA at a university. I've learned quite a bit of economics in my time. If I'm teaching a bunch of first years and a couple times I filled in for a prof and, you know, taught to 400 kids all at once, um, I feel very alive at the end of that. I love talking to the students uh, and I love talking to them about, about economics. I feel alive if I'm sort of the center of attention at a party. I'm just telling a story to try to get everybody to laugh. These things are when I feel alive. I was trying to think of what sort of unites experiences like that. So one idea is I'm the center of attention. I don't think it's quite that because we've all had the experience of being the center of attention and being embarrassed because you're blowing a presentation or you're, you know, you were caught doing something that looks bad or looks stupid or you said something that didn't come out right and everybody noticed. Nobody likes those experiences. So I think it's deeper than probably center of attention. It's I think performing. it has something. It's performing, right? Because it's like. But in a it's good not, way, it's not performative like fake. It's like everyone knows you're performing and you're trying to do a good job of performing. Yeah. And I think that that has to do both with, it's just, I mean, the things that you're good at, you've probably done a lot because you like them. I mean, so there is just a sense of, I could go to the other room and play drums right now and I would enjoy it because I like playing drums. But when somebody's coming out to see you play and it's sounding really good, it's, it's not showing off like I'm cocky and I'm really good at something. Aren't you kind of serving their needs too, because you're entertaining them and you're trying to you're not, you're not just saying, look at how good I am. You're also saying, like, is this fun for you? Like, are you enjoying this? I reminisced for Jay Semko of the Northern Pikes about discovering live music as something that swept me away from my own dark headspace. I had never seen live music, but I heard Don setting up the kit. I heard, um, I was amazed because there's like a cathedral across from that big building. And I had never heard live music and Don hitting that kick and just looked that sound coming right back off that church it was just the coolest thing and uh you know i'm sure i didn't make any make much sense when i talked to you at the time but it was it was very cool and you know then you guys broke up before i got the chance to see you in in 2000 you were back and you were in bell's corners where i was living which was very fortuitous and so that's the one where i went out and saw you guys had a chat and uh the sign out front was like women's oil wrestling and the Northern Pikes as a second <laughs> billy. It's like puppet show. Spinal Tap. Good one. <laughs> yeah. On, on CD or on, on tape, there's one sound. <laughs> and when you're live, it's a lot heavier and it's very cool. And a lot of that is, of course, the kick drum and the bass being in the room with you, but the guitars help too. Oh, yeah. Well, the guitars, you know, I mean, it's fun playing live with the two guitars 
again, you know. Tim finds freedom in guitar, which he still plays, though he's missing a finger and a half on his fretting hand. I became a guitar player maybe when I was about 16 years old. I picked up a guitar. I got in trouble for shoplifting and I uh, got grounded for a little while. And mm-hmm. uh, so I just <laughs> excuse me, played a lot of guitar and it became that became my other escape, you know. Right. I mean, big time, buddy. That, 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 you, you're a guitar player. You know, man. <laughs> you yeah. know? Kim, raised in my assembly with a traveling missionary father, has always found serenity and life in music. So you, you picked a great genre. Like, punk is great for, like, yelling out your anger. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's it's true. Yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming it's always been therapeutic. I'm assuming that it always helped. Totally. Yeah. It's, well, it's like, it's a weird thing where I've said this before, but like when I was a kid and we were being driven around, you know, in a minivan all over Hell's Creation, going from city to city for to meeting to meeting and traveling with my dad. I was like, this is, I, I said to myself, I was like, this is not what I'm going to do with my life. You know, I'm not going to be driving around in a van going from place to place. I was like, I'm going to find a place. and like, I'm going to get in a van and drive around in a van. Whatever it is, it's like something was ingrained in me. Like I feel really comfortable on the road and I like traveling right. around. And I like some seed was planted in me to have like that lifestyle. And it wasn't necessarily what I wanted. But one thing that a missionary's <laughs> daughter told me is her father was a missionary all over South America. And now she can go all over South America. And she's definitely not being a missionary, but she yeah. knows all she knows all her favorite places. And she does it, she does it for her own reasons. That's amazing. John, raised in the culty Taylor Hales Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, discovered freedom in human excellence once he left. When I left, I I started going to uh, discos and nightclubs and Mm -hmm. started dancing to music, which was the 90s music, Mm -hmm. a lot of techno, which was superb dance music. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, being able to to move and dance to music, you know, was very liberating. And that was something that I enjoyed doing. I enjoyed going to sporting events and watching pop stars and watching these incredibly gifted, talented people, which I now believe are, are gifts from God. Yeah. You know, they can use them in different ways, obviously, the organs of that. But, but uh, th- these are wonderful things that give glory to God, really, for the, for the amazing gifts that he's given mankind, uh, which we were forbidden to have anything to do with. Since then, I've, I've enjoyed watching, you know, sports people and musicians. And for, some, for some reason, we were allowed to enjoy nature as from God. But for instance, somebody who's like the best high jumper in the world or some, some incredible physical specimen that can do things, you know, like the Olympics or whatever, we were completely not encouraged to enjoy that, but a tree was okay or a Canyon or a river. Those were okay. Cause those are from God. But the idea that athletes are from God or art or songs are from God. I think that's crazy that, that they wouldn't give him the glory in that sense. That that is where that stuff comes from. You know, most Christians should believe that. You're raised in a religion that you're not even allowed to try that stuff or you're going to die basically in the gutter. Yeah. Well, you're trying all that stuff anyway. Um, yeah. What keeps you on the straight and narrow or how do you make your own lines? How did, how did you do that? Um, I don't know. It wasn't, I think I'm just like really fortunate that I didn't have that predisposition to like go off the rails. And I don't know what that is. Maybe it's a bit of the religious upbringing that always like kept me a little bit I'm too much of a control freak. Yeah, and and me too, but I would try anything. I would do anything. I think I just had 
a lust for life. And also it, it was a combination of not caring if I died, like, yeah. and not being afraid of death mm-hmm. because I had like put that. And also I was just happy that I had made it out. I was happy to be alive, you know, mm-hmm. because I could have not been, you know, like so many things could have happened to me and I could have not made it out of there. I could have not been alive. I wasn't on the street. Like I didn't know what was going to happen to me, how my life was going to turn. And I think I was always grateful for the little bit that I had and willing to take chances and do things and just enjoy the moment and kind of at peace as as to whatever would happen, you know, like, that's fascinating because, I mean, obviously I was one of those suicidal teenagers and felt, feeling trapped and all that. I've been asking people, you know, whatever their views are. And I don't think I've had quite that one. What you basically said is rather than being suicidal, you weren't afraid to die and you would go after any joy that you needed without fear of dying because the joy was the point. And yeah. it, it feels like the flip side of what some of us were dealing with, that we wanted to die because we didn't know what to do and there was no joy ever. Yeah. You know, now that I'm this age, it's like, I'm obviously I'm happy to be alive and I'm happy I want to live, you know, but I didn't ever like even imagine I would live to be this old, to be completely honest. And not for any like crazy reason. I just didn't feel like that was like necessarily in the cards for me. You know what I mean? And hmm. now that I'm here, I'm I'm glad I'm here and I'm I'm happy. But you know, not like in a bad way. I was just like I just want to try and like enjoy this and see what happens and not think too far. I think not thinking too far in the future like helped me. I mean, probably held me back in some aspects of my life, but helped me like kind of make the most of other aspects. I guess I feel the most alive when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Like my writing. I can, I can notice when I haven't done it for a while, but my writing, I feel the most alive when I'm writing. I feel the most alive when I am in music that speaks to me, that resonates with me, that I feel my heart and soul are expressed in music and it's reflecting back to me. I feel the most alive in nature, just being in nature. Jenny is finding peace in small things, in treating herself almost as well as she would treat a houseplant. Laying aside the big causes and the big treatments and that kind of thing, on a daily basis, do you have any things that you try that kind of work sometimes? Just small things. Something that I'm working on, um, and that is very much a work in progress. That is, it it needs to happen, and sometimes doesn't. Is make sure that I'm fed and watered (laughs) and you know that I sleep it's things like that there are certain things that I have never stopped doing from like a personal care perspective because I knew that to stop doing it would create huge problems I don't want to deal with down the line and that that includes like brushing your teeth that that's a thing that I don't want to do sometimes, but I know that if I have teeth issues, that's just going to make it harder for me. But not being miserable physically, it might not make you feel better mentally, but at least it won't make you feel any worse. Even showering 
I find when you're depressed and you live by yourself and you don't need to shower, when you do shower, it helps sometimes. And I know that especially like hydrotherapy is a thing they've always done. One of my theories, tell me what you think of this, because I'm not a scientist. One of my theories as a person who has a moderate you know, experience of depression throughout my life is that your brain starves if you don't give it stimulus. And what I do whenever I'm depressed is absolutely remove all stimulus. I sit in a not terribly brightly lit room. Um, I don't tend to eat. I tend to sleep a lot. I don't move. Um, nothing changes, which means pretty much if you looked at me over the course of six hours, there, there are no changes in sensation and I get very miserable. And one of the weird things is you don't want sensation. If you go out in the bright sun, it seems way too bright. You don't want to go out there. You blink in the, in the sunlight. But it actually seems to be what, what works. And so something like a shower, you don't want to take a shower. But there's undeniable a lot of physical sensation from a hot shower that your brain has to process. And it's like it was starved before. And once it has something, it seems to be much happier when you give it sensations. I think there needs to, like, I think we need to make a distinction between stimulus, sensations, and like, enrichment for lack of a better term um because i have anxiety and it, it is comorbid with depression in a lot of cases and there are a lot of situations where i am intensely overstimulated and that both triggers and contributes to my distress so like my way of dealing um which is different from yours, and that's because we're different people, is I would just go into a room, shut all the lights, make it as dark as possible so that I could not possibly see anything, and just listen to music really loudly. And that works for me. But there's stimulus that will distress you, and there's stimulus that will distract you, Mm-hmm. And there's stimulus that will actually make you feel better. Is that what you're calling enrichment? That some things are are like sensations, but they will not overwhelm you. Yeah. And I think um, enrichment, and this is a term that I took off the internet because I read some very interesting and also humorous pieces about it. Oh, you, did but, your res- um, you did your research then. You're on the internet. So you did some research. I would call it very unreliable research. I'm teasing because when people norm- <laughs> normally when people say, well, I was doing some research, they mean I was on YouTube, saw a TED talk, listened to a podcast. Right now, I have a friend who um, goes to the same church as I currently do. She's leaving. Mm-hmm. She's going to go back to her friend's church. Me, me, the friends, the Quaker. She grew up in this Quaker church and she's going to go back to it because mm-hmm. women are allowed to be active participants and rights um but we have a book club with two other friends and so we and we're all christians none of them except me at this point go to this brethren church but that is alive alive making life life giving i guess Mm -hmm. uh 
it's talking with people who understand the background Mm -hmm. um, because they have come from, they've had involvement with the brethren. My friend was a philosophy and English major. So she, and we're all willing to think about things. So we think about ideas. We can talk about ideas and it, nobody Jesus jukes the conversation. Nobody tries to spin it around into an epistle and, you know, we talk about Jesus all the time. We talk about God. We talk about spiritual things, but nobody puts it into the box. Like we can all talk about it as we've experienced it mm-hmm. without the guidelines imposed by avid churchgoers. And it's really hard to find a group where there isn't at least one person who gets uncomfortable yes. when that freedom starts happening. Yeah. And there, there's only four of us. So maybe that's why, but we're, it's, it's really good. I have a dumb theory that nothing good ever happened that involved more than three people. Wrong. This book club, there's four of us. Oh, that's four. Okay. So four. Yep. But four. it is, it is my theory that groups are overrated. And as a teacher, I think a lot of individual stuff needs to be celebrated and, and mentored and fostered as opposed to the idea that it only counts if you did it in a group of five with rigidly defined roles and no, stuff. there's yeah a small group for certain things is good because you do need varying perspectives mm-hmm. but in a school i hated group projects in school and i'm also going to hazard a bet that you're in a group of four women yes like i'm a sexist but i do think that women are better at forming social units without just getting in a big fight. I know they can get in a big fight, but I think men are better at blowing the whole thing up in a big fight. That's my experience. But well, I derailed I'll, you I'll from what it. specifically you were looking at about these things about enrichment. Oh, um, social media posts. <laughs> yeah. That yeah, actually makes I, you feel better. I'm on Tumblr, which makes me sound awfully old and awfully hipster. And I have been following a lot of people who experience mental health issues, uh, motivation issues. I guess we would probably group these people as um, neurodivergent. It's very interesting to see because there's people from all walks of life there. There's people in all different stages of their realization and their healing process. Some people are still actively in trauma. And there are times when I would argue that I am one of them. There are people who are only just realizing that there's a name for the things that they're experiencing. And um, that there are other people who feel the same thing. And there are people who are actively moving towards healing and moving other people towards healing by sharing their stories. My sister said that one of the things about yoga, especially for women is not that they're doing yoga. It's that they're in a room that's a unity of a bunch of women. I think for some people it's dangerous to make, you know, generalizations of any kind. And that was a generalization. That, That you made or I made? Oh, we both made. That I just made. Somebody at church in the sermon last week brought up the fact that this on Twitter, um, I have seen this multiple times on Twitter, uh, the idea that 
uh, David and Jonathan were gay lovers, not mm-hmm. just friends. Oh, yeah. And I think that is because men in our society are not allowed to have these kind of intimate friendships. Women are not a big deal, but if you're having that kind of an intimate friendship with a man, well, dude, that's so gay mm-hmm. and no, you I, get shut I, down. I totally and- agree. One of the weirdest things about having a female doctor instead of a male doctor is the male doctor has to sort of do the things to sort of assure you that he's not gay. Mm. So he has to say things like, uh, I'm not going to enjoy this, trust me, or something like that. <laughs> Women don't have to say those things. They'll just, they'll just do, do just the medical get on procedure. With or they'll ask for consent, which you don't need to do with men. We don't, we don't need to give consent. So they'll say like, is it okay if I, if I uh, palpitate your forearm? You know, I'm going to have to move your shirt aside. Is that okay? And it's like, like it's you're the doctor like i'm here just do your job <laughs> so i i have found the genders to make a difference with things like doctors but the david jonathan thing I, I find annoying not not because of the idea that they might be gay and i'm sure some people find that very comforting but but because of what you said in exactly the same way that in lord of the rings the need to determine that you know sam Gamgee is definitely gay despite that he marries and has kids. This is an actual person, J.R.R. Tolkien, talking about actual experiences of men bonding over, you know, mutual loss and death and violence in the the First World War and the closeness of the bonds that these men formed. And it's a very, you know, late 20th century thing to look and say, oh yeah, they're all gay. It's like, no, like we don't have to be gay to love other men in a non-sexual way. Um, That is so unnuanced. I hate it. And I think it's damaging to men and to women. Not everyone is gay. And I think we're doing what we can to make the world better and more friendly and safer and nicer for gay people. But it doesn't mean that everyone is gay. No. uh, Despite what Kurt Cobain sings. Even with exercise stuff, those stiff muscles the next day are you having been alive, having lived in a way that lasts, having done something good for your body. With nature, it's hopefully still there the next day, in a way that something you clicked on isn't exactly. And nature is doing its own thing that has nothing to do with you, yet gives back in a way that your phone doesn't. It's not all one way. It's not just a machine designed to make you keep your face and fingers in it for as much of the day as possible. It's just elemental nature that's going to be there, whether you are or aren't. With books, you get away from your life and connect with an author's vision, taking it in and creating an imagining of it at your own pace, unlike a movie or TV show that sets the pace for you and does most of the imagining for you as well. And even listening to music deeply without doing anything else... If you listen right, your silly brain thinks it's helping make that music too, emanating it from you along with the performers. You might even sing or tap your fingers or toe just as if you were part of the original performance. You're performing right along with Fleetwood Mac or Tupac or Rage Against the Machine or Weird Al or whoever, and your brain feels like you're playing on that track. That's the experience. So... Some people knit or sculpt stuff out of clay or do sports ball type stuff or music or doodle or color or do puzzles or whatever, because that stuff recreates you. It's why we call it recreation. It turns you back into yourself after what your day has been doing to the shape of you, makes you feel alive, reminds you that you are alive when you've been doubting that a bit. And people are tough. Sometimes dealing with people is just more than you can handle. 
and they are quite likely to upset you and drive you back into solitude. But other times, you're spending too much time alone and need some friendly, casual hanging out with people you can be yourself around, and that will make you feel alive. Being shunned by my church culture did not make that last bit easy any more than it had made being free and able to explore the world around me easy when I was still trying not to get kicked out of it. As for those who managed to stay in, in a situation in which, as Polish-German political philosopher Rosa Luxemburg says, those who do not move do not notice their chains. Well, my chains were gone. I was thrown uncomfortably free from the soul-crushing circle that was all I knew, and suddenly found myself free and alone in a way and for more time than I ever had been before. When I went through hard times, it was going to be alone in a new way, and this was largely going to be the shape of the rest of my life. The Bible conferences and youth activities and visiting speakers and so on continued to roll on, but they didn't work for me anymore, and I was not supposed to go to them anyway. And when I've had to take cats to the vet to have them put down, when I've gone for MRIs and eventual MS diagnoses, when I've been dumped by this woman or that, I've been alone before during and after all of it, with ample silence and time to think. I was kicked out of my group to wander the wicked world alone, and it's remained that way. My brethren underground friends and most of my musical connections have dried up too. Some of them needed to dry out. The local Christian community not only cut me off as a malcontent, but warned off new people I started to make connections to as well. I was that dangerous guy who hates Christians. I have seldom, of course, been in the position over the years of getting to hear or see exactly what the older brethren or other church women have said when warning Christian folks to steer well clear of me. It's always been secondhand or hearsay. But they're doing it. They're telling people to not text me, have supper with me, add me on Facebook, allow me to participate in a Bible study at Esau's house, or certainly date me, to leave me out of any mandatory contentedness and gratitude events. I have always simply heard that this warning thing happens whenever anyone Christian contacts, befriends, or even continues to remain friends with me after my richly deserved velocitous extramuralization to perpetuity. But in the modern age, there are screen caps and people who want to share with me what leaving's like for them, including the very special experience of having meeting people try to help them back in when they, quite unlike me, left very much on purpose. I see a bunch of this online stuff now. Screen cap for my edification. I will preserve the anonymity of the folks in this particular instance of what I've experienced for more than 20 years because I'm all classy like that. I know, I know, I'm supposed to keep their secrets, not mention their being bodies at all, let alone tell you where they're all buried, just as if I was still an insider with insider status and privileges. Well, no, I'm not an insider. I'm an outsider looking in. They made sure of that. They did that. And unlike most outsiders, I really understand what I'm seeing go on in there. I have the background, and unlike any insiders I know, I am then free to talk about things that happen in there, even if they happen to me, because I am not living in fear of getting kicked out or being treated like I'm Charles Manson, because that's already my daily reality, which is very freeing. And talking about what happens to me, by the way, is treated as the worst form of gossip in which I could participate, and something that all sounds like conspiracy theories anyway. 
How paranoid would a man have to be to imagine people are repeatedly being warned not to keep company on his way to the grave, after all? It's not like I have proof of it, right? Right. So a brethren family stops attending meeting regularly because they want to, because they think their life is better without, and one of the two says that, unlike me, she is a happy atheist now. For some reason, I know a number of married couples in which he believes in God and prayer, and she believes in Wicca meditation and yoga, and thinks that's completely different. Rational, you know. But people stop attending church all the time, and word gets around the congregation. People send them warm, sympathetic Facebook messages asking if they could meet up so they could talk about their lack of attendance and hopefully pray together. And people note me in the friends lists and interacting online with Christians and former Christians. So a friendly Facebook message to one of my Christian atheist friends tends to appear. And this time I get to see it for educational purposes only. I'm not supposed to talk about this, but I'm an asshole. It went like this. First, the claim was made. You and your young family have been much on my mind. Well, yeah, they've not been coming to meeting. Do they even care if their children end up in the burning flames of hell? And something even more serious has prompted this message. We'll see that soon enough. First, though, there's a bunch of stuff about earnestly praying for their souls and the Lord loving us and waiting with open arms to welcome us back to the meeting and being willing to help us with all of the difficulties and problems, presumably like my friend's atheism, anxiety, and depression, that we all face if we will only let him. If we only let him, why all the God-blocking? Then, an encouragement to stop running, come back and finally face these problems and difficulties instead of presumably not talking and thinking about them at all and just running away from them. Now, there's an exchange the expression gaslighting was made to describe, because quite contrary to the language used by the older sister, I mean woman, this younger-than-me person is facing everything. I've seen it. Like so many people, taking dramatic steps to talk about, think about, deal with, and face problems, including being willing to experiment with atheism, medication, and therapy to see if any of that works any better than just covering her head while men paraphrase the King James Bible syllable by syllable for an hour. I have to note that even if the Lord is waiting to welcome us back into the meeting, the actual brethren themselves are never letting most of us back in ever, not so long as we're different from them in any significant way, certainly. They won't even let us go to weddings and funerals quite often. It's fine for people who were never brethren to begin with to go to them, of course, or ones who left on purpose rather than getting kicked out, or apparently ones with kids. Then, back on Facebook, more candor from the older woman. What I am seeing on Facebook is rather obvious with Michael Moore, alarmingly, especially when there are children involved. Now that sounds like some kind of accusation that I will hurt kids, but this woman knows me and my family, and so she knows that's not a sensible comment. That's not what she means at all. She means that digitally associating with me is hurting the family's brethren status and reputation with my supposedly venomous anti-brethren stance, 
clarifying when asked about this, yes, just having your name associated with him, not your children associated with him. Having your Facebook account associated with mine by being Facebook friends kills brethren status and perceived okayness dead and makes people flee for the hills, all right? When the older woman and friend of the family is asked if she is at all familiar with me or my story, which she certainly is, given what assemblies she has been associated with for her whole life, how many meals we shared back in the day, and the fact that she is Facebook friends with my mom and many of my relatives to this day, the voice of the matriarchy responds, No, of course, I never talked to him, but I know he is, shall we say, a discontent, I guess. So many that slam Christianity in the assembly, Michael Moore, could experience a blessed and happier life if they would face the problems and fix them within themselves. You'll note that even after everything, in the few tiny assemblies which remain after all of the brutal infighting and outkicking, there is no view that there are any real problems at all that are problems with or problems in the meeting, in the brethren. The assumption, therefore, is that if you are not content there, if you don't feel happy and blessed to attend regularly and adhere to the lifestyle limits, this is unassailable evidence that you have problems you need to fix to get happier there. For example, problems being contented there, and so you need to fix them in yourself so the gravy train to blessing and happiness can begin again for you. Only then are God's hands free to help you and shower you with his love. When you stop being a dis—I mean a malcontent, Mal means bad. Dis means ruined. So a malcontent is a person who is bad at being contented. A discontent, if that were a word to call people, would be someone who had their contentedness disrupted, disturbed, made dysfunctional by people, by someone else. You know, as to facing my problems, this woman just might be suggesting that I am terribly mentally ill and have presumably never ever sought professional help of any kind or done anything creative, expressive, or therapeutic to candidly explore, talk about, collaborate about, sing about, broadcast about, podcast about, think about, delve into, discuss, and finally face these clear mental problems about us and growing up in the assemblies and getting the good old brethren bitch slap for being whatever it is God made us and intended us to be. So what's the problem? It's a, a culty group with draconian control measures taken in some branches? I know you are, but what am I? Naturally, I reached out immediately with a friendly Facebook message to this woman saying I have fond memories of meals at her house and hope everything's going well with her. I did not get a response. I don't deserve one, of course. You see, I'm not happy. I'm a discontent. Not content with the meeting. Dangerous, sick, crazy, and mean, obviously. Kicks puppies, probably. So very, very sad. When will I stop running and start trying to fix these problems within myself? When will I start discussing them ever with anyone? Because this woman knows something concerning. She just might come down with what I've got, catch what I caught. Most people do leave our groups, after all, so it's hardly unheard of or impossible for her to do the same. So best to socially distance and keep our meeting masks on and not cohort with Christians outside our immediate church group, lest we catch whatever they might have. Of course, if this woman had answered me, I wouldn't have shared her attempted disruption of my social life on here ever. But she doesn't, of course, as she said, talk to me. 
and reports are she's mad she got caught meddling in my social life. A lesser man might ask, what did I ever do to her personally? And yes, I do find it odd that when people interfere in my social life, I'm the last one who's supposed to hear about it, and if I do, I'm supposed to keep quiet about it like it's not my business to know or talk about it. I think it is my business when people are interfering in my business. And I think all of this interfering with me trying to have friends counts as that. But it's been my life for decades. It's like perpetually being in grade five and a couple of the kids deciding that you're the one with cooties, so no one should sit near you. Ultimately, the reason I have never managed to maintain a marriage or a church membership besides my being an asshole is the same as for many people. I don't lie enough, especially to myself and those I care about. And that's a deal breaker for a lot of people. I know a lot of marriages and churches that are more than willing to retain dark, broody, discontented, crazy, depressive, negative folks so long as they lie enough, especially about being contented. It's the price of membership. Let's look in the Wicked Mailbag. Carol says, I feel alive when I seek what is true, taking emotional risks, stepping into the unknown, having stimulating conversations, taking on a challenge, enjoying things, coffees, pies, sunsets, people I love. Kim says, feeling alive is helping people. When asked when she feels most alive, Sandy says, when I am with my chosen family and surrounded by nature in green softness. Living a solitary life in the desert feels like a daily decay. Presumably, Sandy currently lives a solitary life in the desert. Sassy says, Feeling alive when ice skating or fixing something or successfully communicating with someone who doesn't speak much English. Living death is summertime in the South. Hopefully, Sassy is not currently spending summertime in the South. Working within a church system, Shalomi Homi says he feels most alive when my decisions and actions are actively contributing to the larger work and putting things back together and helping people be more whole. Living death is when I do things out of obligation and necessity with no meaning and purpose. To phrase another way, hope is life and despair is death. My cousin Dave, more about him later in the podcast, says the same experience makes him feel most alive and yet nearest death, writing, going for a run, but not just any run, pushing your limits for a personal best time. The last kilometer is an excruciating self-inflicted pain that hurts the mind even more than the body. The next day you get to be sore and even limp around only to do it all over again another day and be better at it. At the same time, there's an unexplained addictive rush associated with it, a sense of accomplishment and empowerment that calls you back for more. It's exhilarating going out late at night to do these runs, not always fast, stepping outside your life for just a moment and go float through freedom and misery. As I've said before, most of my relatives recreationally do things like go for marathon runs or weekend Pilates retreats or whatever. Not me. So much of what I've been doing for the songs on the albums featured on my podcast, I first figured out 
while recording Disappointed over 15 years ago in my little apartment. As with many of the other songs, in many ways, this song sounded best recorded in the moment on a cheap mic with old gear in one take with just a guitar and a voice. But I always want to tell the story more vividly, so I elaborate. Not too much with this song. This song has no drums apart from a heartbeat kick I played, no keyboards or keyboard sounds, and no electric guitars. It's just me. I don't even use a guitar pick. This was the first song I tried playing guitar on with the razor blade. I know I didn't invent that, but I'd never heard of anyone else doing it when I did. I first stole the idea of playing a kick drum to sound like a heartbeat like the one at the start of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon album for this song, and I've done it a lot since, especially once I noticed how many of Neil Young's catchy, simple little acoustic songs are driven by a loping, soothing, feel-good heartbeat kick. This is a feel-bad heartbeat kick, of course. I stole the idea of putting in breathing sounds from Roger Waters' solo stuff once he got kicked out of Pink Floyd for being an asshole. Breathing into a microphone? I could do that. It wasn't hard. I experimented with how slowly and quietly and simply I could play an acoustic guitar with the razor blade and not add too many things in there with it. And with just three falsetto voices, I did my very best to make it sound like my sister was singing along with me. That has since expanded into attempts at three or four backup singers with most of my songs nowadays. This song was a great example of me not trying to figure out how Pink Floyd or Meat Loaf or Black Sabbath or someone sounded, but rather trying to figure out how maybe I sounded. Before uploading this song to the podcast, opening the dusty old song file back up, I didn't want to ruin its simplicity, so I just put a bit of the scary vocal thing with the mic on my throat in there without bothering to sing into a corner this time, and I did a single take of quietly playing the Nashville Strong Acoustic with the razor blade. Oddly, I'd written the song on Bill's 11-string, 12-string back in the day, but when I attempted a more serious recording with newer mics and software over 15 years ago, Bill had moved away and we stopped hanging out, so I just did it with a six-string, albeit with the razor blade pick idea. So today, I added a bit of Nashville-tuned guitar back in to return a bit of the 12-string shimmer. (laughs) 
apart from cleaning up the mix to make it a tiny bit less boomy and echoey, but leave it still a bit boomy and echoey, that was it. Admit to being disappointed, but life with love, with everything. I guess I thought it would all be a bit more natural. Guess I thought I could do it and find. May I suggest an alternative to all of that? I think you know exactly what I mean. Yeah, but tell me this. What could death bring me that I couldn't get from life? How about the peace, the glorious stillness? Of a graveyard But I could take that in Without paying For a plot With my parents Sanity And they're everywhere And they're beautiful And free More than any church far more soothing far less gaudy if I hung out I just might feel like I'd be here potentially peripherally eventually 